Welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from the QI offices in Covent Garden. My name is Dan Schreiber. I'm sitting here with Andy Murray, James Harkin, and Ann Miller. And once again, we have gathered around the microphone with our four favorite facts from the last seven days. And in no particular order, here we go. Starting with you, Harkin. Uh, My fact this week is that in the 1840s, London buses had straps attached to the driver's arms that you would yank if you wanted to stop. This just seems like the worst idea in the world. In 1839, they invented the bell on um, buses, and then they decided to go to the strap version afterwards. <laughs> oh, wow. What? So these are horse buses, of course. Uh, and in those days, you didn't have to go on the left-hand side or the right-hand side of the road, and there were no bus stops or anything like that. And so when you wanted to stop, you needed to tell the driver which direction you wanted to go, to the right-hand side of the road or the left-hand side. So if you wanted to stop on the right-hand side, you would yank his right strap and that would move his right arm, which would move the horse to the side of the wow. road, and then he would stop. Um, I, I read that they didn't have to even pull over to stop for 40 years after the horse-drawn <laughs> bus was invented. So 1829, I think, was the first one. And there was a new law passed in 1867, which said, um, really, you should probably pull over to the side of the street before you just stop the bus. <laughs> yeah, until then, they would just stop dead. I think the first buses in London, they just did the route, and they would let you on wherever. If 70 people could get on, and you just would hail it. There weren't stops and things. So oh, I right. guess they just thought, well, if we let you on anywhere, you can get off. Anywhere. Yeah, exactly. That sounds really good, actually. How did you used to park when you had a horse attached to your car um, mm. the parallel parking yeah parallel parking three point turns how, how does they all work you would pull your horses off and they would feed or drink water <laughs> beg your pardon <laughs> <laughs> if you're a caring horse owner you would pull him off to the right if you wanted to <laughs> <laughs> the horse had two straps attached to it actually Okay, that reminds me of um, another thing about people with straps attached to them. The um, Huichol Indians of central Mexico. Uh, During childbirth, the father would sit above his wife who's giving birth and have um, a strap attached to his testicles. And whenever she had labor pains, she would yank on the strap and um, (laughs) yank his testicles so that he would have the same pain as her. That sounds like a great idea. My God, that is so... When did that stop? Uh, It's a traditional thing. I don't think it's happened for hundreds of years. I don't know why that died out. So another thing about buses is that driving buses wasn't actually legal until 1832. For the first three years, it hadn't been properly regulated or anything. And um, drivers would chain themselves to their seats, but they were still arrested anyway. Mm -hmm. They were chaining themselves to their seats to stop being, you know, stopped from driving by the authorities. Yeah. That's, That's amazing. Isn't that insane? So after World War One, there weren't that many buses in London because they'd been repurposed during the war. So uh, Mr. A. Partridge realised that he could um, m- make some money by running his own buses on the same route, so he'd go alongside the official buses. But he would sort of take shortcuts to avoid traffic and make his buses better. And oh, wow. You often see races between the official bus and then the pirate That's bus. That's great. When he thought of that idea, he must have gone, aha! <laughs> <laughs> Back of the net. <laughs> they do that in some of the countries. I think in Moscow they have like unofficial buses that you can kind of get on them. They're a little bit cheaper than the official ones. It's like hustling for minicabs. Yeah. Someone is driving fast. I mean, like St. Lucia has those as well, I think. They? they have they have sort of, well, they have a range of buses of different levels of officialness, That's essentially. Cool. Um, do you guys remember the Bendy buses? Yes. Yeah. Came, do you know where they are now? Australia? No. I mean, we have a lot of them in Australia. I hadn't noticed that they weren't there They've anymore. They've gone. Yeah, so now you say they, Ken Livingston brought them in. Then Boris got rid of them saying they were a monstrosity and we didn't want them. So they went to Malta. Malta has very narrow, tight roads and they are very 
difficult to maneuver through traffic. So they were a complete disaster. Not uh-huh. least because on the day, um, all the drivers went on strike. So they shipped in drivers from the UK who didn't know the route or the language. Oh they caused God. complete chaos. Um, and they're called Arriva, which is arriving in Italian. And they got nicknamed Vespetta, which means waiting. Because they were just uh, rubbish. So um, Malta have now passed them on. <laughs> and they're now in Sudan. In Sudan. Really? <laughs> wow. The buses. That's unbelievable. <laughs> that is really interesting. Do they drive the buses to these places or do they fly them? <laughs> um, I think it's yeah. a plane with two straps on and then they steer it <laughs> from the ground. So there's one person who was in Malta and wanted to go to Sudan and like, yeah. finally the bus has turned up. <laughs> you wait ages for a bus to Sudan. And then um, all of London's bendy buses come at once. <laughs> Just back in the day where everything was horse-drawn, something that hadn't occurred to me and I read in a book the other day is that if you had an emergency and you needed a doctor doctors just used to leap on a horse and ride to the scene I don't don't know why that's such an amazing image of just like a doctor speeding down the road on a horse Um, and he had to shout the word ambulance backwards as he rode (laughs) I really like this the double-decker bus was introduced maybe I think about 20 years after the original horse-drawn bus and supposedly it was introduced for the great exhibition before they had a proper staircase they just had kind of an iron ladder which was quite you know three or four quite high iron steps but there were also seats available on either side of the driver Um, and there's one book it's called transport in britain from canal lock to gridlock and it says that the seats were hard to get but they were highly prized by younger passengers because of the driver's great reputation for jokes and witty repartee (laughs) so nothing changes does it you know it was the original banter bus yeah (laughs) (laughs) um okay here's the thing here's the best thing i found this week oh yeah who invented the bus? A jack bus. The earliest known public bus line, it was called the Carriage, was launched by Blaise Pascal. The wow. mathematician. The mathematician and philosopher. The he guy. ran a bus company in his spare time. <laughs> no, it's unbelievable, isn't it? How can that even be true? It was on Wikipedia and I checked it out and there's some books, um, some philosophy books about him and apparently it is true. <laughs> I know. That is you. incredible. I wish I knew more about Blaise Pascal so I could yeah. put that in context. Yeah, yeah give us so, a bit more then. Okay, so he, um, in mathematics, he did Pascal's triangle, which is a famous um, load of numbers in a triangle where the two above add to the one below. Uh, he has the SI unit of uh, pressure named after him. Mm-hmm. He wrote a famous book called The Pensee. Uh, which was a philosophy <laughs> book, uh, and he was a great French kind of... Transport enthusiast? Yeah. But yeah, I mean, he was one of the great 17th century French thinkers, and he also invented the bus. That's so incredible. How did Very the bus cool. fall off from his list of achievements? <laughs> like, Well, it's the one that no one ever talks about these days, really. Yeah. Mm. I, read, I read a theory, and I'm still trying to get to the bottom of this, because it sounds like there is some truth to it, but not as much as, uh, <laughs> as most articles would suggest. Um, do you know why... Um, the railroads in this country are the width that they are. Yes, it's the stride of a yeti, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, it's the idea that um, obviously when trains were horse-drawn, you had two horses pulling the train, and the width of the railroads now are the widths of what two horses standing next to each other would be. Now, that's a theory that, that okay. apparently in America as well, that with all the railroads that's how it became but then different countries have different gauges exactly yeah and in fact Britain had two different gauges yeah and America had 20 this is where the theory falls down slightly maybe the horses got like fatter in certain states yeah that's true that's possible different diets there was a there was a way it could have gone Um, oh god there was an amazing program about this ages and ages ago on the Beeb and it was basically saying that there were two gauges a narrow gauge and a broad gauge for trains and the whole of the country eventually went with the narrow gauge simply because it had spread further and faster Mm. like basically 
basically VHS over Betamax, yeah. if you'd yeah. like. Yeah. And so now, these days, we could have these incredible, lavish, huge trains, but we don't. We have um, to kind of squeeze through the aisle yeah. with our coffees. And exactly. Um, I have a thing about, there was a guide to bus etiquette p- printed in the Times in 1834. Right. I just love this so much. Um, so they're quite similar, like, uh, number one, keep your feet off the seats. Two, do not get into a snug corner yourself and then open the windows to admit a northwester upon the neck of your neighbour. Like a, a wind or like rain. It, yeah, or, yeah. You know. the, uh, Isn't it weird um, when you get on a tube and someone just immediately gets on the tube and opens a window without checking the temperature, just goes on, opens the window and yeah. sits yes, down? Yes, that is true. That is weird. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, sometimes, I mind, but sometimes you get on and it's like walking into an oven, though, so I guess. Yeah, no, I if can understand like, it. If it's, it's summer, it's, it's okay. Yeah. In winter, yeah. it's... I get really pissed off by people who open windows. You know how you keep learning a few things about yourself as the years go on? It's a new thing I've learned very recently. If people are Opening, opening windows whenever you walk into a room you might be the problem <laughs> someone else is saying you know what I've, I've recently found out I hate people who smell bad um, <laughs> what can you do what can you do this bus etiquette guide then starts to go slightly off the rails of where we know so uh, number six is do not spit upon the straw you are not in a hogsty um, number seven behave respectfully to females and put not on an unprotected lass the blush because she cannot escape from your brutality which is very good advice. Uh, number eight, if you bring a dog, let him be small and confined by a string. <laughs> let him be small. <laughs> it's like all big dogs are going, please let me be small. <laughs> yeah. That's like on the, on the underground, isn't there's like a rule that you can have a, it's something like you can have a dog on the escort if you can hold it. So we want such women holding yes. this absolutely mega dog. Like, I don't think I can hold him and the dog is so miserable. Um, so there is a bus that goes from Bristol to Bath, which is powered by poo. Oh, it's yeah. The bio bus. Uh, and it's powered by biomethane gas, actually, which comes from um, okay. from excrement. And it can travel up to 186 miles on one tank of gas. <laughs> I thought you were going to say on one poo. <laughs> <laughs> Just the driver gets out every 186 miles. Got to top it up. <laughs> Opens up the cap. <laughs> oh, oh, avert your eyes. No, it can go 186 miles on one tank of gas, which um, takes the annual waste of around five people to produce. So five people have to poo for one year to get one tank of gas. Yeah, wow. but that's, that's not so bad. Yeah, because I, I, I mean, I just, I do that every day. Not a year's worth, <laughs> but like, it's not like I'd have to be like, oh, better, better poo. Like, all you'd have to do is just bag what you're doing, right? I, I see what you mean. I, I don't think... <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying it's not... Just bag what you're doing and post it off to Bristol. <laughs> They'll be thrilled. The council buildings will be fine. <laughs> Okay, time for fact number two, and that is Miller. My fact is that standing like Superman can make you more successful. I love that. (laughs) Which is why I'm doing it right now. So explain, how can that work? Do we know? Okay, so it's a thing called power posing, which is basically about body language and giving off the right impression. And it's um, the work of Amy Cuddy, who's a social psychologist at Harvard, who reckons we should all spend two minutes a day power posing. So there's lots of various postures you can do, but the best one is superhero. So hands on hips, chest out, head up in sort of classic superhero. And people who do this will have increased levels of testosterone, a decrease in cortisol, which is the stress hormone, and feel both more powerful and more open to risk. People who take low posture poses have the opposite. What are low posture poses? Things like slumping in on yourself. It's basically making yourself small. So it's yeah. the thing, if you go to a meeting and you sort of, you know, bend your knees, you tuck your arms and your head's down. You look <laughs> Being off. naked and crying in the corner. <laughs> that also sends <laughs> off bad, bad impressions in job interviews. People, they found that people, if they're with someone who's doing a powerful pose in a powerful position, rather 
rather than copying them, you're more likely, even if you are relatively powerful, to then adopt a weaker stance. By presenting as more confident, you become more confident. So you, by being Superman, you will become not quite Superman, but with Superman-like powers. Well, here's the thing. It also works if you wear Superman outfits, Which apparently. is the, the, um, yeah, less effort. So they put students in um, various different items of clothing and got them to do mental ability tests and they found that generally people were getting about 64% but people in Superman t-shirts were getting 72% Legends. Uh, and also people wearing like white coats uh, did better as well oh, this one's interesting because yeah, wearing a lab coat makes you better but they're taking lab coats away for doctors so they'll have to do something in Superman poses to counterbalance this otherwise it's going to be <laughs> yeah, that the yeah. doctors will perform <laughs> poorly because they're wearing the wrong outfit the costume Tired. thing also actually works for um, Christopher Reeve there's a story in Roger Moore's autobiography where while they were filming the movie, Christopher Reeve, during breaks where he couldn't get out of his clothes, if it was lunchtime, would go to the Pinewood Studios canteen, which is where they were filming. And if he went out in his Superman costume, he was just swarmed, girls coming around, swarming around him, just totally in love with him. If he came out during the Clark Kent scenes, just no one came near him. He was just left alone. They probably the didn't canteen. recognize him. Yeah, I <laughs> know, but that's, yeah. I think this is really good. I really like this. I'm going to start doing this power posing. We should do it all the time. Well, you don't, you don't have to do it in front of people. You can do it for two minutes when you get up in the morning. Yeah. You your day and you'll I carry those benefits with you. There is day. one um, bad thing about um, wearing Superman costumes, and that is if you're a child, because apparently um, superhero costumes cause children to hurt themselves because they start doing playing, which is a bit like, like they try and fly. Oh, no. And stuff like yes. that. Um, um, do you guys know that Superman was originally evil? No. No, he wasn't. Yeah, he was. No, I don't believe uh, that. Well, you can take it up with Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, who came up with Superman. Yeah. Now, in 1932, they did a story called The Reign of the Superman about a homeless man called Bill Dunn, who is transformed by a mad scientist who uses a secret chemical to help him be able to read and control minds. The Superman, with these new powers, kills his creator and starts playing the stock market and winning races <laughs> to get rich enough to take over the world and then loses it all. Wow. Is that because he likes risk? Because he's been doing these power poses that he's playing <laughs> the stock market? Yeah, yeah, I think that's what happens. Um, and then obviously they rewrote him and he was nicer Different <laughs> the second and, time round. And an alien. And Not an insane murderer gambler. Oh, wow. I always thought, by the way, uh, that anytime I saw a portrait of Henry VIII that he was adopting a Superman pose. Yeah. Yeah, he does make himself look mm. big, doesn't That's he? true. I wonder how many people from history is that, where that pose <sighs> was inspired make by. Please make that a Tumblr. Yeah. Superhero history. Yeah, Superman poses oh, in history. that's a really good idea. Okay, there's a guy, uh, there was a newspaper article I read about Superman and it said something like this. When Clark Kent wanted to transform into Superman, it was a fairly simple task. He would step into a phone box, spin around and the switch would be complete. For Herbert Chavez, his change into the comic book world <laughs> <laughs> has taken a bit longer through 16 years of plastic surgery. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh. And, um, yeah, he's um, had plastic surgery to make him look like Superman. Oh, Herbert, you're wow. beautiful as you are. <laughs> Just do the posture. That's enough. Uh, he doesn't really look that much like Superman, to be honest. Yeah. Do you mean before or after he doesn't look in, like... In neither case did he Oh, ever Herbert. Look... <laughs> but, isn't he also, but with Superman, it's lar it is largely the outfit that marks him out. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's why Christopher Reeve, when you know not in costume, was not mobbed because yeah, you yeah. it's you, the costume. Yeah, you look over and you see a bloke just in a shirt and trousers, and you don't think, "Oh my god, I must mob him." You look <laughs> over and you see Superman. You know, yeah. that's very exciting. Herbert Chavez just keeps walking into the Pinewood Canteen, waiting for people to mob him, and go, <laughs> "Another operation, then." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh dear. Oh, okay. oh that's so sad. <laughs> Um, I, I've got one more fact, yeah. which is that uh, Superman was trained to get fit uh, by Darth Vader. 
Right, what, okay. What do you mean? Christopher Reeve, when he was getting fit for the movie, was trained by David Prowse, who was Darth Vader in oh the my Star Wars goodness. movie. Oh, Dave Prowse is the West Country one, isn't yes, he? And there's he a clip is. of him doing Darth Lines in the West Country accent, which is the best thing possibly on the internet. Yes, yeah, because we all know, so a, a famous Star Wars thing is that James Earl Jones became the voice, um, but there is, you're right, footage where you can actually hear the West Country accent <laughs> coming out of Vader's costume. Throw the rebels out the airlock. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's so good. It's just not as simple. Okay, time for fact number three, and that is my fact. My fact is that this year, Margaret Atwood submitted her latest novel, and it's going to hit the bookshops in the year 2114. God, bloody publishers, eh? (laughs) (laughs) I bet she really rushed for that deadline as well. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this is... So, Margaret Atwood, she's the first author who's uh, part of a very new project called the Future Library Project. And the idea is that a bunch of novelists for the next 100 years are going to submit a novel. And in 100 years' time, starting from 2014, uh, the first novel will hit the shops. Uh, It was started by a, a Scottish artist called Katie, Katie Patterson. She had this idea that it would be nice to do a long-term project. And also, the way they're going to publish it is they're growing a forest out in Oslo. And in 100 years' time, they'll chop the trees down and they will be turned into the books. It's so cool. Yeah, it's the big project going on. I read that they're putting a printing press in the library as well. So make sure that if in 100 years we don't have the printing technology we have today, they can still turn the trees into paper and make sure those books definitely get read in 100 years. That's a good idea. Can you imagine if 100 years from now we really mess up this planet and we're really low on trees and suddenly they're like, well, we're just going to take this forest down. But then the Margaret Atwood robot with her brain inside it, a massive robot comes along and stops people and crushes (laughs) Uh, says no these are my trees that's a very cool idea the margaret atwood robot i love that (laughs) i think she would like it yeah she would she's a sci-fi writer it's such a good and strange idea but you're right Mm. because it's like it's like people 150 years ago saying well we're going to have this extraordinary telegram competition Mm. in 100 years time and telegrams will be sent all over the world and we we have no idea what's going to happen in the next 100 years so i like it's optimistic the the printing press is a really good idea it's lasted quite a long time though haven't they so far so there's a reasonable chance they will again yeah because when you say it it sounds very futuristic but you think actually 100 years ago we still read novels from 100 years ago like older than that obviously but yeah it 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 could be reading could be the same or it could be completely different but and they also yeah. said that you know if, if the world changes like language could be different or there's a thing that people think that handwriting might start dying out so just what will people in 100 years be doing and reading and writing yeah. It's yeah. Like, none of us will know but it's, it's 100 it's, you're right it's not that long like this year has gone really quick <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> from a personal perspective yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know Flying just need back. a few more of those and then you're there so they said that in this project you do, you can submit anything it can be like one word it can be a poem it can be a novel so <laughs> that's, very da- that's a very dangerous idea for authors because they will submit <laughs> one, one word, word. <laughs> well, you'd stand about three weeks on that one word wouldn't you <laughs> at the end of it you've got nine percent of the forest left <laughs> the picture is fine it's, I think it's nice that in a hundred years time some people somewhere will definitely be reading books as we know them well they will still be there i yeah. read that in 2115 which is 100 years in the future mm-hmm. people have predicted that there'll only be 600 languages left on earth as opposed to today's 6,000. oh god so well. whatever language margaret atwood's written and you better hope that's one of them yeah if that presumably goes. english presumably <laughs> english yeah that's awful yeah there must have come a tipping point where we, the world stopped gaining languages and started losing them I don't yeah. know. We've but got the 
avatar language now. We've got Klingon. We've mm. got. We, we, I mean, as dumb as that sounds, that is we a are, language. That's not how. That. That's not how Papua New Guinea got its eight hundred languages <laughs> by authors of fantasy novels <laughs> making up novels which people could I, quote to each other at sci-fi conventions. <laughs> Papua New Guinea is just one massive sci-fi convention. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Old, old that's, <laughs> that's all that's made it through. Yeah, yeah. like Langu- Klingon. They teach Klingon. There are Klingon schools now. Like it's to whom? It's a it's language a, though, but it's a language. I know it's a language, but it's not a language that has developed over thousands of years. Years. Klingon is not a replacement for the hundreds of well, beautiful, no, strange languages. because yeah, we're not going to go over to Papua New Guinea and go, sorry to hear that you're losing your languages. We've got a new one for you, We've though. We've got Dothraki for you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm not suggesting we replace them. <laughs> right. I'm just saying there are new languages. Yeah. So emerging. you know how um, Papua New Guinea is famously the place with the most languages? I think mm. yeah. um, one in ten of the Earth's languages are spoken there or something yeah, like that. Yeah, they've got wow. a, at least 800. And but if you a, say there are 6,000, then yeah. Yeah, yeah. But apparently there are a few more in New York City. Or at least it's very close. Um, really? The number in Papua New Guinea compared yeah. to the number in New York City. But the Papua New Guinea ones are native, presumably, and New yeah. York is immigrants. Ex- exactly. It's sort of right. everywhere. Yeah, yeah. That's cool. Oh, that's very cool. I had to look for things that haven't been read at the time, and I found out that so the World Bank released a lot of their release all their reports as PDFs, um, and they found out that nearly a third of them are never read. Never, a third wow. of never downloaded, never read. But the reason I love this story is the report that said no one reads them was released as a PDF, and because <laughs> this, <laughs> and because the story sort of did quite well and got a lot of coverage, their most read PDF could be the PDF saying nobody so, reads their PDF. That's very really good. Funny. That's brilliant. <laughs> that's great. So the second author who's going to be contributing to this project is David Mitchell, the novelist, mm. and. I, there's something about this idea of submitting something that no one's going to be able to give you feedback on if you're an mm. author. And <laughs> Incredibly just tempting. A, no reviews. Yeah, you know, yeah, no yeah. difficult sales for the paperback <laughs> edition. <laughs> I'd still like the advance, obviously. <laughs> the audience are going to love it. Yeah. Well, that's what kind of what happened with uh, Mark Twain's autobiography, wasn't it? Yeah. Did mm-hmm. he kind of say that no one was allowed to read it for 100 years or something? Yeah, he did. I mean, he, oh, really? he put a he put it into... That was the deal. It could be published 100 years after his death, and that is what happened. It's the first two volumes have come out. They're ginormous, and they are... It was only about two years ago, three years ago, they finally got published. There's currently one Spike Milligan book that yet remains to be published. Spike Milligan... Can't find a publisher, eh? <laughs> <laughs> it's basically... Um, Spike Milligan did a bunch of books called... Um, According to, uh, Mm. so Black Beauty, according to Spike Milligan, Treasure Island, Hand of the Baskervilles. He rewrote the classics. Um, Mark Twain's autobiography, according to (laughs) Spike Spike Milligan. (laughs) But um, this one book isn't out of copyright yet, and Mm. the copyright holders have refused to let him to do that. So his agent, Norma Farns, is just holding on to it, and the copyright is going to come up in about 10 years or so. Right. Then Then we'll get one more Spike Milligan book, yeah. That's That's the other thing about Margaret Atwood's thing. Doesn't copyright run out 70 years after you die? Oh, so she's not going to see any royalties. Well, she has, exactly. <laughs> like her, um, her estate won't see anything unless she lives for another 30 years. Right, and she's, what, 75 at the moment, Is I she? think. Well, yeah, she's in her possible, 70s. I guess. Okay. She's invented a thing called the long pen. Have you read about this? Yeah, it's just a really long pen. It's ginormous. <laughs> no, a long pen, very different. This is this is kind of like a futuristic invention. It's the idea that you can sign on a tablet, but it can appear... It was basically designed oh, for yeah. book tours and so on. If she couldn't physically be in a place... Yeah, so they'll could... have like a robot arm um, and you'll go and sit next to the robot arm and then she'll do a Skype chat with you and you'll say, my name's, you know, Herbert Chavez or whatever. I've had dozens of operations to look like you, Margaret. <laughs> but no one's mobbing me. 
And then she'll say, okay, um, Herbert, I'll sign your book for you. Uh, And then she'll sign it on a tablet. And then the robot arm will come down onto your book and sign exactly as she signed it. Wow. So rather than just being like, they have the Otto ones where they can just do a present signature. This is actually her doing it in real time. Yeah. Yeah. So so if she can't be in the room in Australia for a book signing, she could do a live Skype chat. And then you can go to a desk where there's a robot arm and you can watch her signing it Uh, on Skype and the robot's doing it. I think we've got to be very careful with that kind of thing. And I think the voice (laughs) of the author, whoever it is, should immediately be converted into a metallic robot voice. Thank you for coming to my (laughs) signing. It it works especially well for like dystopian novel signings. So you're like, welcome to the future. Yeah. Yeah. Here is your book. Yeah. I would. I would idea. Well, robotic Margot Atwood, as you were saying earlier. Yeah. There is a good story in that. Um, I had a look for authors whose books haven't been, um, have had delays or have been lost. Um, Dr. Zeus, um, they, when they cleared out his attic. Three. I approve of that pronunciation. <laughs> Just so we're clear, is that Dr. Seuss to the rest of us? <laughs> Dr. S-E-U-S-S. Yeah, Dr. Seuss. But Dr. Zeus is probably the perfect pronunciation. Yeah. Um, they, when he died, his, basically a box of sort of things got put to one side and then they found it in 2013. In, uh, three books, one of which is What Pet Should I Get? I think it's like a fabulous book. Is it a dog? Is it a frog? <laughs> I mean, it's a shame that Doctor has already written this book. So otherwise, we should. You know, <laughs> Christmas 2015 by the Elves. Watch out for it. Okay, time for our final fact, and that is Murray. My fact is that Japan is considering installing toilets in its lifts. Sounds like a right. plan to me. Yep. Yeah. Um, does it have very long lift journeys or what? Well, it doesn't, but it does have earthquakes, lots of Japan. Oh, and when earthquakes happen and lifts get stuck, um, there are already some little seats in uh, in lifts so that uh, elderly or infirm people can sit down. Because mm. the last time it happened, people were stuck for you know hours in the lifts. And there has been a recent proposal, and they haven't completed it yet, but they might do, which is to fit the seats with little uh, toilets just inside, sort of discreetly, so that... If they have an enormous earthquake soon in Japan, they've calculated that up to 17,000 people could be trapped in lifts for some time while they just get everyone out and clear the buildings yeah. and so on. So um, that is that would be quite good That'd to be have. Good. And then they could collect it all and power a bus. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, the lifts, that was the yeah. lifts, that's um, true. But I, so I was reading uh, the story that talks about this, yeah. and they kept referring to the earthquakes as going, we're expecting the big one. Mm. Yeah. They really think it's imminently coming, this big, ginormous earthquake. But, but like, it's definitely better to be thinking that than thinking, it'll be fine, there'll yeah. be no earthquakes <laughs> around here anytime yeah, soon. True. You know their lifts actually already have sensors in them that can detect the beginnings of earthquakes. So if the lifts detect an earthquakes coming, they sort of try and stop at a floor and get people out. They won't carry That's on going. Clever. That is so amazing. Extra safety mechanisms. Imagine if there's like just about to start an earthquake mm. and then it stops on the floor to let you out but you're halfway through having to poo. <laughs> <laughs> you're not meant to use it unless there's an earthquake. Oh, <laughs> oh right. It's okay. not just for your That's, day into the office. People That's, will start using it for that reason though, right? Surely. <laughs> you should poo responsibly. <laughs> Imagine if you're about to get into a lift and someone walks out and goes, I'll give it a few minutes. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, so the really uh, cool thing about lifts is they go back really far. So the Colosseum had lifts, as yeah. uh, I'm not sure if we've mentioned that before, actually. But they were hand-powered. Yeah, and they were to get the animals up into the arena, right? Yeah. Um, but um, the invention of the lift, or the lift becoming popular, completely changed what people think of as the best room in a building. So the best rooms in a building used to be on the first floor. Right. Uh, because if you were wealthy, you didn't want to have to climb loads of stairs. 
And then suddenly the lift is invented and people think, oh, it's high up here. And there's the sort of extra privilege of traveling in a lift. You've you know, got it's a all view. Glossy. You've got a view and it's yeah. sort of, it's more naturally exclusive. But in re- ancient Roman apartment blocks, the top floor was the port for the poorest. If you go to the big buildings in America, like the, the richest people would always be on the top floor. But then after 9-11, they all moved down to the bottom floors. Oh, really? Did they? Yeah. Oh, really? Wow. I believe that's true. Will that change again over time? I, I was only told by people at the time that that was happening. I don't know okay. if it's changed. You know the mm. first generation of skyscrapers were known as elevator buildings. Were they? Oh. Really? Oh, that's very good. They could only really exist because of the elevators, yeah, I guess. Yeah, they only go yeah. so high. And um, the first lift in London was at the Grosvenor Hotel, and they, it was called the Ascending Room. That's yes, good. I oh, I heard it's of beautiful. that. It sounds amazing. Yeah, yeah it sounds really cool. Room. Um, ancient lifts are often sort of you know, ropes and simple mechanisms. And I read that um, in the Greek Meteora Mountains, they would put people in baskets and hook them up on ropes. And huh. there's a story that a visitor asked them how often they change the rope, and the reply was, each time that it breaks. <laughs> Very <laughs> nice. <laughs> so you with confidence. That's so good. That's funny. Going on there. Um, have you heard of paternoster lifts? Yeah, Where? they have one in the um, Arts Tower in Sheffield University. Really? No way. Yeah. It's basically two lift shafts open to you without a door, mm. and then there's a chain of compartments, which one is always going up and one is always going down, right? And um, they move on a continuous belt, and you just step in as a compartment passes you by, and it carries you Wow. Up. I know. And there are still, apparently, loads of them in Prague, because they didn't have quite the same safety standards, basically, mm. during communist times, as they said, no, we don't need your safety standards. Same in Sheffield. Same in Sheffield. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and there are some in Germany, and they're called paternosters after our father, which is the Lord's Prayer, right? Because of the way you move rosary beads. Mm. Oh, yeah. How cool is that? Really? They is that sort why? of t- click through up and down, yeah. I didn't know that. That's very cool. Uh, the, my favourite thing actually about this fact is that it does kind of fit into that thing of Japan just consistently when you hear stories of Japan and technology just feels like they're really cool and they've got just great it's innovations and stuff yeah and bathroom stuff seems to be like there's an invention which is toilet slippers the idea that you would change your house slippers into yeah. toilet slippers and you could go in and then you'd leave them at the toilet so That's it's cool. just a, quite a nice idea but just a little inside fact for our show if you listen to our theme tune right at the beginning of our show, mm. there's a Japanese voice at the top of our theme tune. That is the voice of a bathtub in Japan telling the person in the flat that their bathtub is ready, that their bath wow. is run and it's ready. Cool. So Ash Gardner, who, uh, who's been on the show and does Empress, uh, that's he took that recording sitting in his kitchen of his bath telling him <laughs> it's ready for him to come. That's so oh, cool. Yeah, That's very cool. Um, I also read that in Japanese pu- public toilets, like in train stations and stuff, have these really cool things. Like they'll have like a seat, so you've got a baby, you can put your baby in a seat, so you have to sort of balance your child and go to the toilet. They have like a sort of flip down board you can stand on if you want to change your socks or your shoes. So you don't have to stand on the floor where everyone stands with their feet. That's a good it's idea. Like, just have lots of really smart ideas. Japan is so clever in so many ways. It's so good. They must be horrified when they come over here and like go to like Waterloo Station. I know. <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the thing about removing your shoes is enormous, isn't it? In your own home, you would just never wear shoes. There's a tiny bit in the entrance hallway where you come in, take your shoes off, and you put on your slippers, and then you're in your home. Makes sense. Yeah, it does. It absolutely does. Do you know that Fuji Tech, um, so it's a Japanese company, claimed to make the world's smoothest lifts, and they have a thing called the nickel test, where they put a nickel or a coin, place it so it's facing up on uh, the lift, and then they ride it from the top to the bottom. If the coin is still there, it passes the test. Wait, do you mean wow. on its edge? On its edge. Oh, that's wow. Yeah, flat would be a lot. That reminds me, um, just going back to buses from all that time ago, um, in China, they had this drive safely campaign of bus drivers. And the way that they did it is they'd 
put like hang from the ceiling next to the driver like a wok full of water mm-hmm. and the idea was you couldn't jerk the bus because then you'd spill the water <laughs> and that really oh. happened that's very that, good quite recently i think that happened that's quite smart yeah that's yeah. very clever the yeah. first department store in new york city um to have a lift uh it promised customers it would take them to the second floor in 26 seconds Okay. Um, today, the lift in the Burj Al Khalifa goes 2,038 feet in 35 seconds. Wow. So that's how far we've come in that that's time. Amazing. Do you know, in um, 1989, a guy called Nicholas White got trapped in his office for 41 hours after there's a power cut and he got stuck between two floors and no one noticed him. So oh, he, no. he ended up having to pee down the lift shaft, which he hoped would attract attention, but it didn't. He was I, don't know what, I don't know wh- <laughs> where he was looking for attention from because no one lives at the bottom of the lift shaft and would be inconvenient. By urine. His story is really sad though, because it oh, ruined really? his life. What? He wrote an article about it, um, saying because this happened in 1999, and he sought compensation. Basically, lots of lawyers came waggling, you know, yeah, million-figure yeah. sums in front of him. And he spent about five years trying to get compensation, and in the end, he got sort of, you know, some compensation, but nothing like the millions yeah, that yeah. he'd been led yeah, to. It's only 41 hope. hours of overtime. Yeah, well, and but then his relationship broke down, and he said, oh, no. "This has basically ruined my life." And I did this to myself. I I shouldn't have gone looking for that, and I'm, I sort of gave in to the temptation. Oh, yeah, really, really sad. Do you know the person who's got the world record for the longest time stuck in a lift? Was it Nicholas White? No, it was a <laughs> Cypriot lady called Kivali Papa John. Uh, Papa John. <laughs> Papa John of the Pizza. Papa John family. <laughs> Was she delivering? <laughs> no, she was going to get her groceries. Uh, was, was she going to get tomatoes, <laughs> mozzarella? Sweet corn, pepperoni. Maybe some pineapple and ham if she was feeling fun. <laughs> it's such a good name, isn't it? Well, it's a full name in and of itself, which is why it's not really a surname as far as I know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, she went out to get her groceries in December 1987. And she She's got still there. She's still there. <laughs> But people keep laughing at her about her surname. It's not fair. I think it's a hoax call. So, so what um, happened? Um, she was stuck in her lift in her apartment block for six days. Wow. Uh, but luckily, she'd just been shopping, so she had loads of food. Yeah, of oh, course. Yeah, perfect. But when you say she holds the world record, was that like she was five days in and they were going, listen, Miss, Mrs. Papa John's, we've got Guinness coming. <laughs> Hold on for a bit longer. We reckon we could get a really good yeah. record out of this. Is she holding the doors stuff. shut when they're trying to, come on, I need one more hour in here and I get the record. Okay, that's it. That's all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to get in contact with any of us about the stuff we've said over the course of this podcast, we're all on Twitter. You can get me on at Schreiberland. James. At Eggshaped. Anne. At Miller underscore Anne. Andy. At Andrew Hunter M. You can also get us all on at QI Podcast. You can email us on podcast at QI.com. And you can also go to no such thing as a fish.com where we've got all of our previous episodes. We'll see you again next week. Back with another episode. Goodbye. <laughs>